Hello and welcome to Legal Tech Arcade with me, Rob McAdam, an independent podcast about tech-driven legal service delivery and the people and products that make it all happen. Okay, so welcome to the latest episode of the Legal Tech Arcade podcast. And today I'm really pleased to be joined by Adam Roney, who is the founder and CEO of Calls9. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Rob, great to be with you. Thank you for having me on the show. No no problem at all. And uh, this is this is quite a nice one, I think, because you and I have known each other for, for several years. There's a there's a good, good history behind it, uh, all the way back to, I think it's law school, isn't it? Um, it- yeah, it's 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 a long time, but we won't reveal the number of years exactly yeah, in this uh, good call. recording. <laughs> good call, good call. But yeah, I think I passed across a few times at law school, and and then we we're both at Eversheds for a while, and um, you know, obviously living. We both both lived it. Well, you're still in Leeds, and I was in Leeds, and kind of part of that legal tech community up there, which is which is a strong community actually. But um, yeah, so it's good. I mean, it's great to have you on, and uh, this is going to be a. I know it'll be a fascinating conversation. Okay, so. Um, one thing I've been doing in recent episodes is is basically saying every episode I need to change my icebreaker question and then not, not changing the icebreaker question. Um, so today is the moment that we are actually going to switch this up a little bit and I'm going to throw a different question at you. So um, you, you'll probably know that I usually ask a question around arcade games and favorite arcade games. Uh, I'm going to move away from that, but I'm going to stick with the kind of 80s theme that, that kind of sits behind this whole arcade uh, thing. So the question is going to be, uh, I'm going to ask you what your favorite 80s movie was. And this is a great subject. So uh, let's hear it. Favorite 80s movie. Uh, tremendous. Well, I suppose um, I would say not only was this my favorite 80s movie, but it still is my favorite 80s mm. movie. And it has to be um, Ghostbusters yeah. and all things related to it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And um, why is that? What, what is it about Ghostbusters that just, I mean, I, I love it as well, but for you, what is it about it? So as a kid, I had an absolute obsession um, with uh, New York and America. Yeah. And I remember watching this film and just being captivated by it and thinking, wow, you know, you've got to go to New York. That's where all the ghosts are. Yeah. And uh, I even remember going into school one day and um, rounding up a bunch of friends and saying, listen, do you want to go on a road trip uh, to New York? <laughs> yeah. And I think the plan was we were going to drive. Right, um, okay. <laughs> none of us had really worked out, obviously, the body of water in between yeah. <laughs> uh, the UK and the States, but we were convinced that uh, that was what was going to happen. So it was backpacks on and uh, off we went. So yeah, nice. just captivated the imagination, really. Yeah, so, I mean, that's the thing about 80s movies, though. I mean, I don't think, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm kind of a child of the 80s, born in the 80s, but um, I don't know what it is, but there are some absolutely amazing films made in the 80s. And you will you will never beat them. You can never beat the films of the eighties. Like whether it's Indiana Jones, Back to the Future, E.T., Goonies. Like there's just oh God, there's so many classics to choose from. Yeah, there are. And what's great about them all is they they all embraced um, big hair, loud clothes, uh, slightly quirky music. Yeah. So. Um, uh, I think with I think with that regard, Ghostbusters kind of uh, yeah is the pinnacle for me. Yeah, definitely. I, I'm I'm starting to feel there's a there's an '80s movie podcast in me somewhere, but uh, maybe that's that's one for another year. I think. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, let's get let's get on to the uh, let's get on to the real stuff and the background to you and and to calls nine because obviously I know you guys and have known you for for a little while now. Um, 
but you are based in Leeds. Uh, you, you get a lot of buzz and talk about some of the kind of London scene and legal tech scene. And people listening might not necessarily kind of know you guys or what you do. So do you want to give us a little bit of background to how Calls9 got started, what it is you guys do, what value do you bring? Um, and just talk to us a little bit about um, about the company. Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose it's probably worth explaining um, my, my journey just before Calls9. So I had um, always been involved with technology for, mm. a, for a very long time. And I'd been involved with a number of different um, tech startups and tech projects and through happenstance really ended up training to be a lawyer <laughs> and was fortunate enough to get a training contract at Eversheds. And just as we joined, the firm was in an interesting um, position. It was going through uh, the financial crisis like every other firm and was looking for ways to use innovation to mm. drive growth and change across the business. And this really was the perfect storm for me because the firm ran uh, an internal uh, sort of call to arms, a competition for everybody across the business, whether you were a trainee or whether you were the managing partner, to come up with ideas for ways that we can improve the way the firm operated. And I put forward some suggestions around the way clients could access information, um, look at their matters, uh, track their billing, and built a, a sort of small tech demo, if you like, which was put out there to... Um, uh, the judging panel of this award and it went down well and it got to the point where the firm's uh, 10 largest clients I think voted on various solutions that had been put forward mm. and um, the solution I was involved in creating um, was jointly awarded uh, the uh, sort of prize for the competition and that led to a whole sort of whirlwind of events really where we ended up building a digital product um, rolling it out across the firm, yeah. uh, trialing it with clients of all sizes, really. And it's probably worth noting that whilst I was doing this, I was uh, still a trainee. So this was very early on in my career, and it was before the legal tech revolution that we're all kind of living and <laughs> yeah. living yeah. now. You know, this wasn't legal tech. This was just IT at the time. And the vision for it, I think, um, from firms beyond Eversheds, it hasn't really sort of crystallized. So... This really was um, interesting ground. And I think that what made the situation with Eversheds unique was they put quite a lot of money behind trying to bring these ideas to life. Mm -hmm. And what's great about that solution that we designed, this is back in 2009, is in one form or another, it still exists today. Except today, it's now staffed by a whole team of people. And I meet people who's jobs and careers are working in and around that solution and others that the firm has developed. Um, and that's their full-time occupation, yeah. which, which is amazing really, because in 2009, 2010, those careers just simply didn't exist. You know, they, they weren't really viable options. Yeah. Um, particularly if you'd set your heart on being a lawyer as well, you know, those were not things that you could pursue. Mm. Well, so, um, so, so what was the so what was the solution that you could have submitted for this competition? What 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 did it do? So it did a lot of things that probably I guess we take for granted today. But it was all about real time billing, um, real time matter management, mm. access to your fee earners in a more transparent way, access to key documents and information. And it was before um, really the high key revolution had happened. Yeah. So it, it was before that platform was 
rolled out and certainly before it reached maturity that it has done um, today. And it was also, uh, you know, very much at the, the sort of beginning of the smartphone journey, the mobile journey. I remember standing up in a meeting um, holding an iPhone saying, I think this is going to replace the BlackBerry at some point and we should think about how we deliver services through mobile. You know, that's that's how early on this conversation was. And you know, today that's all taken for granted. So I think that um, a lot of that technology, um, you know, has become has become more commonplace now. But the I guess that spirit of adventure and innovation really is what probably stands out from the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it was very interesting. I mean, I remember when the firm was trialing iPads, I think mm. there were. I think there were five of us that had them in the firm. And to give you some context, you know, one of them was the chairman. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, and then one of them was me. And I'd ended up playing around with this tech. So just got into some really interesting conversations because of it. Um, I think where that segues into Calls 9 is that, to be honest with you, at the time, there just weren't viable career options for me to pursue that and stay inside a law firm. Yeah. So um, I made the decision that, I was going to leave and, and set up Calls9 as a consultancy initially to try and work with other professional services businesses to do the same type of work. Okay. That that journey lasted for uh, for two or three years. And then eventually people started turning around and saying, well, the ideas are great, but we need people to build them. And at the time, that isn't something that Calls9 was doing. And so over a period of perhaps another two or three years, we started building our own technology platform so that we could not only consult on the ideas for how professional services businesses can change, but we could actually build and deploy the technology to bring that to life as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so almost take, as you said, you were going to build that, you built that platform at Eversheds at a time when things like HiQ didn't exist. And then kind of going into to your own company and doing the odd project consultancy, but then recognizing that the only way of really driving forward and, and change your organizations was to kind of create that underlying platform that could form the basis of most solutions that you were going to try and deliver for these clients absolutely yeah there, there just weren't there weren't choices um out there for people mm. you know it was it was a, it was a very complex situation and to some extent notwithstanding obviously the um the progress that iq has made and, and and others firms are still presented with in some situations, this polarity between something which is off the shelf or building something completely bespoke from scratch. And actually, it's all about finding the sweet spot between the two. Yeah. And I think that that has become, you know, that's, that's very much always been my obsession, really, is it's, it's not the technology that matters, it's the outcome that matters. But we have to use the technology to get there as quickly as possible. And actually getting that blend of technologies right I think is is one of the biggest challenges that, that firms face now. Yeah, well, exactly. I think it's that it's that problem, isn't it? That sometimes organisations think, well, we're not being truly creative or innovative if we don't make something from scratch ourselves. And actually, they're just shooting themselves in the foot and causing a lot more cost, a lot more time involved in these projects and could probably get to the, the place they want to get to a lot quicker. Yeah, and I think, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge, I'm a huge believer in, in the movement of 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 low code and, and no code, and I joke with people that actually this isn't this isn't new. You know, when I started programming, when I was I was probably nine or ten, um, you know, you'd be talking hundreds of lines of code mm. to make something very simple happen, which now you can achieve with one or two lines of code. So the idea that we're moving towards 
more efficient ways of bringing technology to life is not new. Mm. The, the, the key, though, is that the technology doesn't build itself. You still need really great strategy and thinking around what's the market opportunity, where can we stand out, how can we be different? And then once we've launched it, you know, how do we maintain this? What's our total cost of ownership? Where are we taking it? And I think there's a whole, there's a whole innovation and product development life cycle, actually, which you know, is completely separate from whether you do something low code or no code um, or whether you're, you're more involved. And I think that's something that you know, we're seeing more and more uh, in terms of a focus for firms is it's not just about you know, launching anything. It's about launching something that's going to drive a step change in the business. Yeah, but then I think this is, um, and I've had conversations about this before, but I think this is where firms are going to find it tricky that, again, I, I love the low-code, no-code platforms, but you can't get around the fact that you still need a lot of the, the roles, a lot of the process that just still go into software development. So you might have a tool that allows you to create a product in a more efficient way, but as you say, you know, you still need your product managers that look at the market, try and determine what needs to get built. You still need engineers in a sense. They might be not as technical. They're just skilled in this low or no code platform, but you need engineers to actually build. You need to think about versioning. You need to think about release cycles. You need to then think about aftercare and support. You can't really get, there is no shortcut to just kind of using a low code, no code platform to say, here's my product, it's to market and that's all we need to do. And and it, it does require some of these new roles to come about. And I think those those firms that do that, for example, we had Tara Waters on the podcast recently. Um, and, and I know this from working at Ashurst, but they were the exact, exact roles that Ashurst are investing in because they recognize building product, even if it's with something low code, no code, does still require those roles and those skill sets. It, it does. And I think that, um, you know, so much of this is cyclical in nature anyway. I, I think that firms have gone through a stage, certainly if, if you know, you go back to when we were building innovation at, at um, Evershed, you know, we, we did build that in-house. And this, the scale of that, quite frankly, you would not build in-house now. Mm. You, you would find a different way of doing it. But at the time, there weren't very many options available. Yeah. We've then sort of capitulated to, okay, what we need to do is, is hire all these people and we'll buy all these uh, low-code, no-code platforms and we'll speed it up that way. But actually, there's there's such a gap between that and an amazing customer experience. And I think in terms of where we've taken the business, you know, we work with professional services organisations as a whole. So it's not just law firms. You know, we work with fintech organizations health tech martech engineering and actually when you look across uh, the, the sector as a whole the legal sector is dramatically behind in terms of that first class customer experience and first class innovation mm-hmm. and when you look at the other organizations in uh, in those sectors they're they're bringing in best in class thinking from outside the organization to enrich what they're trying to do with their own products and services And I think that where we'll end up is law firms experimenting more with that blend of internal resource and expertise because you need it, but also making sure you're bringing in people to Mm -hmm. help you get the most out of that investment. Mm -hmm. I think um, law firms are guilty of this little bit of kind of looking too inward to try and solve solve solutions and looking to 
people within um, their teams, uh, you know, sometimes VNs to say, well, would you like to get involved more on the innovation and, and transformation side of things? And that's great. Don't get me wrong. I think it's really great when those people make that transition, but there is a lot of knowledge and skill outside the industry that could be brought to bear to make law better. Um, and it's something that other professional services firms, like you said, are, are much more comfortable doing, bringing in other people, other voices. Uh, and I think they see the results in doing so. And I know, I, I know there is this constant debate about legal tech, law tech, you know, the fact that it is called legal tech or law tech, whether that's even a thing. But I guess, interesting to hear your perspective, but the fact that you're dealing with professional services firms, I mean, is law, is law tech, legal tech, law special, or is actually, uh, is everyone struggling with the same, same issues uh, right across the board? I think lots of the issues are the same. Yeah, I, I think... Um... You know the distinction. I think the distinction between law tech and legal tech is is interesting. If if what we're really talking about is law tech is is the sort of external interface and legal tech is is the internal. Mm-hmm. Um, but that distinction doesn't really exist in other sectors. So if you think about um, you know name any uh, cutting edge fintech organisation, think about the way that you're onboarded into their world. Think about the way that you go through identity verification think about how you book appointments with advisors mm. how you receive documentation how you interface with what are at times very complex workflows how you pay how you resolve disputes i mean that entire life cycle really does apply to any uh, professional services based organization so there are there are tranches within the legal sector which are specific in terms of Um, what I would almost say the legal engineering of specific types of processes and documents and expertise. But in terms of the core themes, I don't think they are unique Mm. to the legal sector. I think they apply to lots of sectors. And there are many sectors that um, have have sort of stolen a march, if you like. And I I do think financial services um, is one of them. I also think uh, MarTech is as well. You know, there's a lot of marketing innovation that would have previously been carried out by you know teams of people that isn't anymore. Yeah. So th- there's a huge amount of of, of cross pollination that can happen if you can say, okay, we're in the business of law, but actually, what can we learn by looking um, further afield? Why, why is why do you think law is is a little further behind? Because you're absolutely right that some of these other organisations really are just kind of uh, streets ahead in terms of the way they're operating. Like onboarding is a really good example you just use actually. Why is law further behind is it because they just started later is it because they perhaps haven't invested enough in it is it still too much kind of seen as a bit of a a, a gimmick in a business development um, initiative rather than just actually one of survival what what what's your view on that yeah so uh, i think for me there are sort of two or three things which define you know why law has had the trajectory it's had i think the first is education so Historically, we have been educated to find problems and not find solutions. So when presented with uh, change, oftentimes the legal mind kicks in and we go to find the risks with change as opposed to the the possible benefits of change. Mm. And I think that that is really important with things like onboarding. I talk to firms who you know, will privately say, we would love to do that. 
we'd love to have a smoother onboarding process, but we don't know how to get past our risk team. Yeah. There's nothing legally stopping it, but the, the, the attitude around the risk is, is, um, is too conservative. I think the second is that, you know, we have to be very um, open and acknowledge the fact that the business of law has been hugely successful for a very long time. And that raises the question, therefore, you know, if the model has worked so well, do we really need to change it? And there's lots of pressure coming now. I mean, I think for the first time ever, you look at, um, say, what you know the, the big four are doing, and that's putting pressure on firms. And then you look at all of the startups in the space as well. That's putting pressure on, yeah. on firms. Yeah. And I think they now feel it for the first time and say, actually, now we have to do something because we've got startups that are productizing what we're doing. And we've got the big four doing, doing a really good job of managed services, actually. And so that really narrows the playing field. But in terms of why it hasn't changed, I think it has been a hugely successful model. And then I think the third and final thing, which is, which is talked about so much, you know, that it won't be new to anybody listening, is obviously the ownership structure is quite mm. particular. So I, I think... I think those three things taken together are are the big reasons why it hasn't changed. But equally, all of those um, factors are why it could, because you look across, uh, you know, most of the of, of the top law firms, you've got astonishingly capable people um, that any business, quite frankly, would love to have inside the organisation in terms of education, capability, work ethic, everything. Mm. You then move to the second point and you say it's been a really successful model commercially. OK, well, there's cash to spend and there's um, investments that can be made in technology. And then in terms of the ownership structure, what's interesting about that is it is, of course, changing. There's a new generation of partners coming into law firms and there's a whole new raft of senior positions outside of partner that exist and so they they are changing and creating the structure i think for um for innovation to come and for technology to be more widely adopted so i think it's definitely more positive than not but i think those three things taken together are why um it's been slower than some sectors yeah no i think you're right and and an interesting thing i often think about is the way that technology and innovation is being structured in in law firms for example um and the trend i saw is that it's kind of gone through waves. So um, in the first kind of iteration, a bit like you you were at Eversheds with with your little project, you know, you had that ability to go out there and build it and you were supported. And it was a little bit of a, I don't know, that kind of, kind of skunk works type atmosphere where you were kind of allowed to go and do something different, do something that was slightly um, new for the firm. But then, and, and lots of other people were doing that in, in lots of other law firms as well. That became a little bit more normalized and law firms thought, okay, yeah, this is, um, yeah, this is interesting. We should do more of this and started to kind of wrap around the traditional structures around some of those teams. So whereas these teams started in a very exciting way and they were doing some really cool stuff over in the corner, then it started becoming the new law type departments. Um, and these technology teams and innovation teams started to look remarkably like practice groups and normal teams within law firms. Um, which I think was a shame and is a, is a pity and a missed opportunity. And I think the real interesting firms are the ones that are building these teams, but not not to be mini practice groups or normal teams in the regular way, but actually as a building them out as a test bed for an alternative business structure. Um, and and I think that's the way to go because yes, you might not be brave enough to suddenly say, okay, we're going to rip up the rule book and this firm is changing, you know, and we're going to do it quickly. You might not want to do that, but you can start something discreetly 
and allow them to operate in a different way and start to learn from them and allow their learnings to seep into the way the law firm does things until you get to a point where actually the the lines are blurred and you realize you've changed the you've changed the model of the law firm but you've done it through a team that was allowed and allowed space and given the opportunity to change and so i think it's really interesting to watch precisely how law firms approach this because i think it's quite clear the ones that are going to succeed are the ones that are taking that that type of approach yeah i think that's right i mean we we both know that if the culture isn't right then you're not going to get the outcomes you want and so by creating these kind of um subgroups or suborganizations if you like i think you stand the chance of of creating a different cultural environment and you know if you look at organizations like google and you know clearly a forward-thinking tech company even they have to do the same thing so there's definitely something in that i still think or i still question you know even if you can get the conditions right and you can get the culture right you've still got to have the right people in there Mm -hmm. so at the moment whether they're always going to be from inside your firm i think is a you know, is a case by case point to answer. But if you were creating that subset of groups and that separate culture and that separate, you know, identity in certain situations, and then you were flooding it with that external talent and external capability and experience, then you might get something really exciting mm. happening. Mm. Because building technology that's going to fundamentally transform your business is not easy, and the cost of getting it wrong can be can be very high. So you want to you don't want to set these people up for failure, you know. You want to, you want to give them all the tools um, that they have available to them to succeed. So I haven't seen the perfect model yet, but I think it's great that firms are trying. Um, I personally think it will continue. But I was reading an article uh, that the lawyer published recently, and they were actually sort of arguing kind of in the opposite direction, and they were saying that part of the challenge that law firms face is that you know, if you take Deloitte Legal Services, uh, for example, you know, its its parent company, Deloitte, has, you know, something like 50 billion in revenue. How are you ever going to financially compete with that organisation if you're trying to build everything yourselves? You're trying mm. to do that in-house. You, you've got to augment yourself with external capability to give yourself any chance of being competitive. And so I do think the landscape's shifting. So I think the people that are experimenting with you know, lamps and incubators um, and spin-offs. I think it's the right thing to do, but I think there's something in what the lawyer is saying, which is to get to scale and critical mass, move very quickly and make sure you augment uh, your internal team with the right external capability and experience as well. Yeah, and that's why you're seeing the growth of, of the kind of partnerships model and, and much more collaboration between between organisations, including law firms as well, for that, for that very reason. Because you're not, you can't, no matter how big a law firm likes to think of itself, as you say, you know, you're not going to compete with the big four, no matter how, how big the size of the law firm. So you've got to start thinking about how you're going to create those alliances, those partnerships, um, bringing that, bring that resource in, in more creative ways to, to allow you to compete. Um, or you, you take the view, actually, we're going, to, we're going to go more niche and we're going to focus on a particular area and master that and do something that no one else is doing in that specific area. Yeah, and it's and it's a good point. I mean, our sort of coming back to this, this sort of calls nine story. I guess our mode of engagement with people typically is that we will we will run a digital transformation audit, and this is where 
we're trying to understand where the opportunity lies for that business. And we're essentially saying, how can we improve the business, disrupt your market or, or enter a new one? And to get that right, we talk to key stakeholders, employees, um, we call them customers, not clients, because they're buying from you and mm. you need to give them a customer experience. But we look at the whole organization and basically come up with a game plan. What falls out of that is a transformation project. And they're usually in the areas of developing a new business model to help the firm uh, enter a new market, improving ways of working um, or looking at the customer experience. Now, sometimes these projects are so big that it's not feasible to approach them on their own, in which case we'll actually look at exploring a transformation partnership uh, with our customers. And so in certain situations, we'll form these types of strategic alliances that you're talking about mm. to help them bring something to market to accelerate that journey so that it's not just um, purely transactional. And I think that that will grow and grow and grow mm. um, because it's in the interests of um, organisations like Calls9 because we, we want to be deeply integrated into businesses, but we also want to be incentivized to add the most value. And it's certainly of interest um, to our customers because they're trying to move faster and faster across an increasing range of technological areas as well. Mm -hmm. I'm just conscious, actually, that we, we obviously started talking about the uh, the Calls Nine journey, and we we kind of we've just gone off on these really interesting topics. But just to just uh, to bring it back round again, because um, you just talked a little bit about those audits and and your current approach. So I think you mentioned you you kind of built out that platform at Calls Nine after leaving Eversheds a few years. Then you brought out the built out the platform, which I think you called Nucleus, if I remember. Um, that's right, isn't it? It's Nucleus. Yeah. That is right. Yeah, and the reason I know that is because uh, it was around the same time Silicon Valley was knocking around, and they obviously had like uh, <laughs> they, they had nucleus yeah. by Hooli, didn't they? So uh, they, they did. Yeah, somebody. Um, I was I was really excited. Yeah, the first first day we launched the platform. Yeah, I thought, this is this is it. This is our moment. Got a text message off a friend, and it was an iTunes voucher. I was like, why is he giving me this? He goes, "There's a series you need to buy." And uh, yeah, bought Silicon Valley and uh, basically howled my way through it because that is that was essentially my life. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, we we launched the platform um, formally back in uh, it was kind of the end of 2015 uh, is when we formally mm. launched. Mm. So and that was on the back of the projects and experience that we'd had to date, really in a consultancy capacity, and it was initially focused um, on mobile technology and mobile experiences. And over time, that developed into um, a kind of full 360 digital experience. Yeah. So, so that was in 2015 and obviously we're 2021 now. So what's kind of happened in the last six years that's kind of taking you more towards this? I know you were working with lots of professional services firms, but it seems like you're very, very focused in that area now. So what's the last six years look like? I think the, the reason for the sort of, the, the change or almost like re-emphasis of focus on professional services is that everything we talked about, which goes back even further, everything we talked about 10 years ago is only now just starting to come of age mm. because really the first um, enabler that we needed was for people to really trust cloud computing and take it seriously because until you do that, we can't operate at scale. We can't you know, can't operate globally, we can't operate with the resilience that we need to. That's now completely taken for granted. That then leads you into, okay, are you prepared to um, build these partnerships with external vendors? 
and actually really uh, go deeper on what that relationship looks like. And firms are now doing that. And then I think the last thing really is, is quite frankly, shifting market behaviour. So lots of the things that we talked about five or six years ago that were nice to have for firms are absolutely mandatory, are often included on, you know, as core requirements on RFPs, on tenders. And so to some extent, it's not a choice anymore. In 2021, if you're a professional services business, you have to have a compelling uh, digital first or hybrid digital physical offering that has an absolutely killer customer experience, is backed by great support, feels next generation, reduces friction to sale, makes my life easier as a customer. You know, that's now a mandatory requirement. Mm. So I think that the, um, you know, the wave has been building for a while, but I think it's starting to sort of uh, crash on the beach now. And I think that for us, you know, we feel well positioned to obviously build on our experience, but help people who've not gone on this journey yet, or maybe have gone on it and maybe it didn't go very well and they want to, they want to revisit it. They want to try something different. You know, I think now's the time to do it and you're going to get a lot of support, you know, not just from the call signs of the world, but actually from your clients as well, because your clients want you to do this. You know, the whole world wants you to move in this direction. Mm. How can you make this better, easier, and, you know, most of the time more cost effective as well. Mm. So yeah, I think things take time to build critical mass, but digital transformation in professional services, um, and in particular, the, I would say the accelerated developments around legal tech, you know, that time has come. Yeah, and, and I guess, like you say, you guys are very well placed because, like you say, this wave's been building, but in the meantime, you've kind of been, you know, you've built out your platform. You've got some really great experience and skill sets within the business around the kind of the te- technology element, which now means you're kind of, you're ready. You're almost kind of, hey guys, you know, we, we've done this. We know what we're doing. We've got the technology. We've got the skill sets. It's great that you're now ready and we can we can kind of team up. I guess some some organizations maybe do it the other way around where, they're trying to consult and advise and people aren't quite ready. And then when they are, it's like, okay, now we've got to kind of scramble to, to pull the tech element together. But I think you've got it the right way around actually. Um, and, and, and you said like this wave has been building um, and you've just alluded to it there about the, the, the overwhelming need now for professional services organizations to really take this digital transformation um, seriously. But what would you say the main challenges are for, or do you see for professional services organisations, and what are they experiencing right now that means they are turning to to you and to technology? I think, I think the big thing that's changed is the competitive landscape. So there are organisations, and we've obviously worked with you know many of them over the last um, uh, ten years, but there are organisations that have moved faster, and they've been able to steal a march if you like on some of the traditional players and I think initially some of the firms certainly the, the bigger ones would sort of have said look you know we're really big that's not going to impact us if you were a smaller firm you probably put more emphasis on your people and you said, look, it's very personal people want a personal service I'm not worried about you know technology taking away um, business from me and then I also think another element that people sometimes get wrong is price sensitivity they think that um, wealthy people, wealthy clients, wealthy businesses um, are not prepared to experiment with some of the more cheap and cheerful solutions. And the reality is they are. And they don't always work, but sometimes they work. And I, I won't name any on the uh, podcast, but you know, if you want to um, 
if you want to do some corporate transactional work in 2021, there's a lot of choices for you from, uh, you know, a magic circle firm all the way through to something utterly automated that you'll never speak to a human about. And that's the competitive landscape. It has fundamentally shifted. I think the other thing that's happening um, is really what I describe as shifting expectations um, with customers and clients. You know, they, if you remember when the, uh, the sort of personalization of IT happened, you know, we had iPhones at home, but we didn't have them in the office. And why was the office such a strange technology experience, but you'd go home and you'd have such a wonderful technology yeah. experience. Yeah. And those two worlds have just been smashed together because actually we're people first, you know, and you spend most of your working, most of your life at work, you want to have a great experience with technology. So I think firms are taking that seriously. And it's the same with consumers and everything else they do. You know, I can purchase um, insurance online in a really uh, innovative way. I can deal with my life savings digitally. I can transact with anybody globally. But actually, if I want to work with a law firm, I have to send them a, a photocopy yeah. of my passport or yeah. walk into an office and sign a deed. I mean, it, it's just, it's really backward. And people are going, come on, there's got to be, there's got to be a better way. And for the organisations prepared to experiment with what that better way might look like, there is market share to be taken. And, mm. you know, they are taking it. Um, and then I think the other challenges that they face really have been coming for a long time, but have been, you know, absolutely accelerated by COVID-19. And that's around working patterns and disruptive technology. So wind the clock back, you know, 24 months, there were many firms uh, and, and PSOs that had uh, remote working policies, but were they anywhere near as flexible and as accommodating as they are now? The answer is surely no. Mm. So, you know, now we can be anywhere. Well, if we can be anywhere, our customers can be anywhere. And I think what that means is actually, if you're sitting at home and you're working with your client, uh, you know, somewhere else in the world and you remotely transact with them and they pay you uh, and you never meet, well, guess what? You're an e-commerce business. And if you're an e-commerce business, suddenly there's a whole world of things that exist that you can do that you couldn't do before. Mm. So it's, it's fundamentally changing the perception of what it is to be a professional services business. And that's enabled by the disruptive technology, which, you know, is all the headliners, you know, like AI. But actually, the more day-to-day -day practical things are, we're transacting remotely on a regular basis. And because of that, we need to think really carefully about what that customer experience feels like, because actually that relationship I've got with that client is super important but they just have to open up a new web browser tab and they can evaluate half a dozen new suppliers, three of which will be automated and two of which will be completely different business models. And I've lost them. So mm. the, the, the competitive landscape has, has fundamentally changed everything. And I think the fact we're now transacting remotely and there's an acceptance that actually most PSAs are essentially uh, to, to one extent or another e-commerce offerings, everything's on the table for discussion. And again, that's all of these challenges have to be addressed because if you don't address them, you will gently, slowly but surely, lose your client base. Yeah. Because the physicality that you had before is just significantly less relevant mm. than it was in the pre-pandemic era. Mm. Mm. I, I I'm really hopeful. I've said this before on the podcast that that, that there will be a positive outcome from the pandemic, in the sense that if you if you'd gone back over a year and said this is what's going to happen people are going to be working 
dispersed remotely. Um, you'll be transacting everything through um, collaboration tools. Um, people would have said, "Oh, you know, we, that's crazy. You know, we can't, we couldn't survive a change of that nature, of that scale. That's too much change too soon." Well, we've all done it. We've all done it, and actually, on the whole, I think most of us are working quite productively as well. And I, my big hope is that people look at that and gives give some organisations some bravery, some confidence to say. And going back to your point about risk, to say big things can happen and it actually isn't the end of the world and actually some some good can come of this and there can be some big opportunities that, that flow from the pandemic and the way we're working now. Um, so, but yeah, that's my, my big hope that actually this acts as a catalyst for change and that does really speed up um, people's uh, confidence to do things differently. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think, um, you know, pure play technology companies have been doing this for a very long time you know, with remote distributed um, teams, you know, think about some of the biggest startups in the world, you know, organizations like Basecamp, I think mm. they're almost 80, 90% remote. Yeah. Um, you know, we've got the big tech companies in the States now saying you, you don't need to come back to the office ever, you know, Twitter, Facebook, etc. So I think that, you know, technology will lead the way and technology will empower other industries to do the same thing. And so much of it is about trust, and getting the culture right and not worrying about the things that don't matter, like presenteeism. Yeah. Um, you know, I th- for me, though, and I'd be interested to see what you think about this as well, uh, Rob, one area where I think the, the post-pandemic era has to be careful is actually bringing on junior talent as well. Because one of the things that I really benefited from um, when I was at Evershed was being around more senior people, overhearing those those water cooler conversations, understanding the way that people were interacting and and actually being able to quite easily sort of tap someone on the shoulder and say, hey, what do you think about this? I think in a fully remote world, that's a really big challenge. And certainly even in a hybrid um world as well. Mm. You know, how do we how do we make sure we still keep training people, bringing them on and, and, and making sure that junior people feel kind of engaged in the profession as a whole? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I've I've onboarded two roles um, during the pandemic. So um, that was Ashurst first and then obviously Busy Lamp recently. But, I, you know, I'm, a, I'm an experienced professional. Um, so I think it's much easier for people like me to come into a, into a, a new role having... Um, kind of worked in that in that area for several years and comfortable making connections and building relationships even even remotely you're absolutely right though for for a junior i can't i can't imagine the challenge that is facing or has faced trainees during the last 12 months where they've had to join a firm and tackle the level of work that they've had to tackle without having met, met their team without having sat through you know the things that you and i would have done when we 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 first became trainees training and um uh, you know, knowledge sharing sessions and socials, etc. They're so important. And and as a trainee, you know, you call it seats because you move, you literally move around seats and you sit with different teams and you absorb. Um, that's all gone. You know, your a seat now is your seat at home in front of the same yeah. desk. Um, and I think what's going to have to change is that I guess supervision and men- mentoring was one of those skills you kind of just developed over time you know you were you're a junior a bit more senior someone said hey can you take this trainee under your wing and you go yeah sure they can sit next to me and they'll absorb it was quite an informal relationship and I think now what we're going to have to do is move to much more formal relationships 
uh, and it's it's got to be seen as a as a genuine skill set and and a skill set for the for the new remote digital age as well and i think people need to be trained on actually how they should properly mentor um people that are under their wing how they should actually train them um i think juniors should also be taught how can you get the most out of a re- remote relationship with your you know with your supervisor and i think also the the access to knowledge and know-how needs to be made better um you know i know firms and other organizations have their knowledge bases like documents or faqs we need to move beyond that because people will also be working asynchronously increasingly yeah. as well and you can't actually just even you can't just message through teams your supervisor say what's the answer you need to be able to get the answer perhaps outside of some of these these normal hours as well so i think it's a a change to skill sets, a change um, also to, to to knowledge access as well. But um, I think overall we need to take it very seriously, and you know we could see a lot more kind of solutions and software and um, training providers emerging that are focused on this problem. I think. Yeah. So we now have a policy um, in relation to feedback, um, both actually internally and, and with our customers as well. And we have a phrase which is feedback is a meeting, not a call. Mm. So if you're giving feedback to someone um, or receiving feedback from someone, you know, this is a very this is an this is a this is an EQ sensitive activity. So it needs to have as many sensory touch points as possible. So that's not an email. It's not a call. It's you know, let's let's go on video and obviously when we're able to move around again, let's Let's meet, but we've been adopting technologies like Loom, so we're recording short videos and sending them to each other on a really regular basis now. And I think that that, that you know type of communication will become um, you know much more commonplace. Mm. And again, sort of feeding back into what does that mean for professional services businesses as a whole? It's actually how you're going to communicate with your customers as well, because the people that will work harder to drive more on the EQ side of things in a remote world. Um, stand a chance of winning more relationships so you know get get out of the inbox get out of the you know, purely automated software and start trying to think of other ways to build relationships mm. with people as well because we're all in the same boat with it yeah it's it, it's interesting you mentioned the loom example um t- tom dunlop from surmise came on the podcast recently I, I like i like making these little connections but um he was talking about when he was an in-house lawyer and uh he didn't like the impersonal nature of sending back markups to the other side that you just kind of get something in your email. I'll redline it, send it over. They'll redline it, send it back. Um, he used to sit and record videos of himself talking through the changes he'd made to the contract to make it a much more human personal experience. And that actually drove better results. So it sounds you know, it's very similar to what you're saying there, which is actually take the time to make more of a human connection um, as you would do in an office, don't just default to "I'll just send them an email or send them a send, you know, drop them a Teams message," because that isn't you don't get that connection. It's not very personal at all. So that's a really interesting yeah. concept. Absolutely, and what you're doing as well is you're you're taking advantage of the technology, which is you're you're converting something into a into a bigger data experience. So when you record it, you know the way uh, Tom was doing there. You've got the video, you can create a transcript of it, mm. you have an archive of it, it becomes organizational knowledge you can go back to. You you're building up this world that other people can be onboarded into. Um, and we're actually developing 
systems that are using similar technology in a in a customer facing perspective as well. So I think that the sweet spot for many firms is to say, okay, at the one end of the spectrum, we've got the managed services um, giants, okay, which we may or may not be able to compete with. At the other end of the spectrum, we've got the pure play digital only offering. Where can we sit? Well, the reality is if you've got talented people and if you've got physical infrastructure, then you've got the capability to launch a really interesting digital physical hybrid offering, Mm. which actually brings together the best of all of these worlds. The human touch where it's necessary, automation where you can save time and money, but constantly building that relationship throughout. And so encouraging lawyers to, I mean, it takes, it takes, um, it takes courage to do what that, what that lawyer was doing, if you described, because actually think how many people would feel nervous about making, you know, a gaffe as they were talking or, you know, giving, giving something away as to why they'd marked something up in a particular manner. When in fact, actually there's just an openness and transparency to it, which is really, I think, refreshing and rewarding, you know, a lawyer discussing why they've made changes either to a client to another lawyer or another member of their team. Yeah, that's that's where it's going. And that's the strange paradox, I think, of the fact that we're remote in the physical sense. But actually, um, there's a greater degree of transparency, potentially anyway, in terms of how we work and actually get the job done. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about a a relationship between like a kind of a a junior and a supervisor or more senior um, member, member of staff as well, it's just you will have those moments. You know, I can remember some really nice moments actually someone you know someone i worked with um when i was a junior guy jackson uh, at cobbett's actually um you know used to spend a lot of time would sit me down would go into a meeting room would run through things you know he really spent the time and which was great but again that you know that was very much for my benefit and that was one conversation that happened and then it was gone but but i think if one of the upsides of moving to a, a different approach to um you know, a digital approach to relationships um, between a junior and a more senior member of staff is that we now have an opportunity, as you said, to capture that knowledge, like you just mentioned about the transcripts, whether it's transcripts or, you know, a chat thread or whatever it might be in terms of how you're interacting, you now have the opportunity to actually capture that and consolidate that and build it as part of a knowledge base that others can access. So actually, I think we're going to start to see more knowledge shared more broadly as a result of this as well. And, And it's funny, isn't it, that uh, law and other professional services is so much about time served to move up the ranks because actually it just takes time to go through enough experiences to make you good and more senior but actually with with more knowledge and access to more know-how and training and and etc through this um, gathering of, of of knowledge maybe people will be able to accelerate further maybe it'll be up to the person you know how much do you want to learn how much do you want to absorb how good can you actually get and there won't be any of this your three-year, four-year, five-year, six-year PQE, you're almost there. Okay, now you can become a managing associate another few years, then you can become a partner. With that, with more access to knowledge, actually maybe people will be able to accelerate, accelerate their careers and get, get further along faster. Absolutely. I think that if you look at technology again, you can, you can go online now and you can teach yourself um, you know, virtually anything and you can find examples of work and access to knowledge and information and replay of videos and that that accelerates your learning process you know compare that to when i started programming you know i remember going into the local library and literally ordering copies of books that would come from uh, london that you'd have to wait three days to yeah. receive yeah. you could have them for a week and then you'd have to send them back again um you know it's crazy but i think what you're describing i mean just to give you a sense like z- zooming back out to 
actually where I think this has an impact for all of the firms. This is all part of this this journey or transition from what we call professional services 1.0 to professional services 2.0. And in the 1.0 world, we've got outdated business models, which could be based on the way they're delivered, priced, or the geographical uh, nature of them, outdated ways of working, which you know are all the things we've been talking about. And quite, I would say quite linear, quite one-size-fits-all customer experiences. Where the sector can go, you know, which is based on all of this technology and all this innovation we've been talking about, is actually we can now develop new business models. So we can use all of this technology to be hybrid, digital, physical, um, Every professional services organisation in 2021 should think of itself as an e-commerce business as standard, Mm. transacting globally. We can improve the way we work and the way we can communicate with each other. And I think one of the big areas in that space actually will be around workplace analytics um, and developing better markers and indicators for have we got a healthy, productive, happy workforce? And that's so much more sophisticated than presenteeism and the billable hour. Um, and then the last kind of pillar for us is about improved customer experiences. And we use the phrase omni-channel, which is you know very familiar in a retail context. You know, omni-channel retail, I start an experience on my phone, it moves to my laptop, it moves to in-store, it moves to click and collect. You know, this is that's the world you're used to now from a from a consumer purchasing perspective. And professional services can be exactly the same. You know, there are there are certain things that actually need to be physical or benefit from being physical there's a whole raft of things that don't and being able to have technology that facilitates that omni-channel transition with a professional services provider uh, depending on the nature of the work or depending on the 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 relationship i think it's really important because all of that gives you this 360 view of your customer which means you can personalize that experience you can meet them where they are and you can accelerate more quickly than you've ever been able to before and so some of these small kernels, if you like, like the, the idea of well, let's record a short video and let's send that to someone as a market exercise. These these are all the these are all the building blocks, if you like, um, of a much wider transition to professional services 2.0, which has started, but which I think the acceleration really is going to come in the next uh, two to three years. Mm. No, I, I completely agree. Um, but but I mean, how does Calls Nine then? Um, you, you, we can recognise that. These, these firms need to go from professional services 1.0 to 2.0. It's for, for a lot of them, I guess it's quite a big jump. But I mean, how does Cause 9 work with them? What, what do you guys do to help them make that leap and transition to that, that new model of doing things? So the, the starting point for us really is getting under the skin of where the business is at a current point in time and saying, okay, where does the opportunity lie to use digital strategically to help transform the organization? And we do that through our digital transformation audit process. And that all starts with people. So whilst we are a tech company, um, the tech only comes after you've engaged with people and you've really got into the skin of the problems they face or the opportunities they face um, and ultimately getting them on side to work in a way that's productive for the organisation. Because, you know, change, change not managed properly um, quite frankly, it can at times be worse than doing nothing at all. So mm. you've got to get everybody uh, on side and on board, and that's key stakeholders, uh, customers, employees, and then looking at the sector as a whole and taking a strategic view of it. When you think about the changes that we're talking about, 
they do actually map onto a story arc, which is fairly grand, but which is fairly knowable. And so none of these things are flash in the pan changes. Um, COVID-19, whilst some things will go back to the way they were, has had a permanent impact on the way that people think about technology um, the way they're going to buy new services and actually the way they're prepared to work and live their lives. To really get under what that means for your company, for your business, that's, that's not about buying in a widget or buying in a piece of software. You've got to go through a process to actually audit the organisation and say, OK, where does digital have the best impact for us? Once you've done that, you can then start to categorise the things that fall out of it. And that's where we start to build the digital strategy that forms the projects that we uh, that we go on and deliver. And typically, we are looking at helping firms develop a new business model, a better way of working or an improved customer experience, which could be um, actually helping them take that first step into e-commerce, thinking about the way that their intranet connects to their external customer portals, building customer portals if they haven't got them, helping them work on things like membership and network services, process automation and knowledge management. It's mm. all of the pillars that an organisation um, really needs to take seriously to be able to make step change improvements in what technology is doing for their business and not simply just purchase widgets and software. Mm. Um, and so if when we bring all of that together, we typically end up launching new services or in many cases improving existing ones. And that's what gets us unbelievably excited. It has done for... You know, 10 years now. And I think from our perspective, what's unique is that, you know, in the, in the morning we could be dealing with, you know, a multi-billion pound uh, PSO that operates in, you know, 50 countries and has thousands of staff. And in the afternoon we can be dealing with a startup that has a very small team, but an absolutely killer idea that is prepared to go for that tech first or digital um, first approach to really shake up the market. And so, the understanding of both of those worlds, both the enterprise and existing business world and the startup world together, I think gives us a really unique viewpoint, if you like, that we can share with the businesses that we work mm. with and support. Mm. So how, this, I'm really fascinated by your, your digital transformation audit. I think that's a really um, unique approach to things and, and is a very considered approach. And I guess comes from a place where you've seen successful projects you've seen unsuccessful projects and you know that the right thought process and planning up front actually leads to the best outcomes how is that how is that commonly received when you when you're brought in obviously people i guess are really excited they kind of like let's let's really tackle this digital transformation challenge let's like bring in some tech and you kind of say hang on a minute let's let's just see the lay of the land let's figure this out i mean how how is it how is it received and um what are some of the kind of big successes you've seen with it yeah, so it's it's a really great question. I would say that um, certainly in la in larger organisations, there will always be um, multiple points of view, and you know people fall into I would say you know two or three categories. You've got you've got early adopters that just want to bring in lots of different toys and see what can happen. You've got people in the middle that want to take a, a more considered approach and say, okay, I think we need to plan. I think we need to look at the lay of land more. And then you've got people that will simply, you know, initially say no. <laughs> and so that's that's your landscape. You've got enthusiasm through to skepticism and a little bit in the middle. And what's nice about that is that 
the, the digital transformation audit is designed to create a safe environment where all of those people come together, where all of the opinions are equally valid. And actually, through a process that we've developed over many years, all of them are taken seriously. Mm. And I think that's the key. There's a, there's a, there's a risk of saying, okay, well, we're only going to listen to the, to the sexiest, coolest you know, sounding idea and we're not going to listen to the most conservative one and vice versa. And actually what you need is to bring these ideas together. Now, once you've done that, I mean, that's all about internal. That's all about understanding where the organisation is at that point in time. Then you've got to go external and you've got to say, OK, that's what we think. But actually, what do our customers think? What does the sector think? And what's the competitive opportunity? And that's where I think the success really kicks in because, you know, we're doing this full time. So we have a great understanding of the market. We're able to spend significant amounts of time and resource on getting under the skin of where a particular element of the market is heading. And we bring that insight back. So suddenly you've gone from talking about technology to talking about, okay, let's make sure everybody internally understands why we're doing this. Then let's go and look at the market and understand why we're doing it. And then we talk about the technology. So in terms of guaranteeing success, there's a much greater chance of that happening by following this process and following this methodology. Mm. And I think that's why we've been able to work with um, some of the clients that we have done and why you know, we've got clients that have been with us for years and years and years and we support them in you know, dozens of countries around the world because it's an approach that works and it's an approach that's different from a vendor who would come in and say, hey, you need this piece of software because this piece of software will change your world. Mm. And that's not really the way we do it. We start by meeting the firm where they are. We build bespoke solutions around their needs. But crucially, we focus on where their competitive advantages in the market. Mm. I mean, you just mentioned it there. Some of the you, know, you mentioned customers that you work with. I mean, I don't know whether you're able to give a one or two examples, perhaps, of um, organisations you've worked with and, and some of those projects and some of the outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, in in legal sector, um, in the legal sector specifically, um, one of our one of our earliest um, uh, clients, but actually one of our longest running clients was actually Interlaw. And Interlaw is uh, one of the world's largest um, legal networks, which firms can join and they can become part of this, of this global machine and they can uh, refer business to each other and they can grow their law firm through this network. And when we started working with uh, Interlaw, which was back in 2014-15, you know, the challenge was, okay, we have over 7,500 lawyers around the world. How do we connect them together? How do we uh, drive this sense of community? How do, we, how do we drive this network forward? And in some sense, what we were doing was putting the foundations in place for what lots of organisations would go on to copy in terms of building a virtual global legal presence through an integrated customer experience, uh, very core and um, refined membership and network services, real-time sales tracking and referral tracking, and process automation as well to help speed up the management of all of these back office processes from Interlaw's perspective as well. So we were able to work with them and conceive a game plan, which absolutely went through the stages I'm talking about, mm -hmm. where, yes, it was a technology project, but it was all about understanding where the organisation was, where the organisation wanted to be, and also understanding, um, you know, what the competitive landscape was. And so that has been, um, you know, a hugely uh, successful project, has lasted 
uh, for many, many years and, and, and continues to go from strength to strength um, today. So that's that's a, that's a one end of the spectrum. We've equally done things that have been, you know, more localised within single firms as well. So, you know, one of our other clients is um, Squire Patton Boggs and their challenge was different. It was about transforming how the employee and customer experiences. We rolled out essentially a global knowledge management and internal communications tool, um, which is now used by the firm and it's, it's both its lawyers and um, its clients alike. And again, by doing that, we've merged these two worlds together. We've brought the, the customer experience closer to the employee experience and we've got data that, that powers all of that so we understand the relationships in both cases. And again, that was made possible by sitting down with the firm and saying, okay, we understand the challenges that are faced internally. We understand the market opportunity. Let's let's look at what we can do that's different and that's innovative. Yeah. And again, that, that technology has been running on our platform um, for several years. Awesome. So I think, you know, there's what's interesting about digital transformation is it cuts across lots of areas where there are, you know, pre-existing widgets or software solutions. And so part of what you're doing is you're saying, okay, you may already have something. But is it actually the right fit? And does it fit a strategy? Or is it just a, um, a sort of one-off solution? And I think that the firms that can respond by building truly integrated end-to-end customer experiences and end-to-end em- employee experiences are the ones that will get the most value out of digital transformation because they're putting the building blocks in place to accelerate their journey, not just for now, but also in the future as well. Yeah, I mean that that's that's so spot on and I think the the short term view is one of the biggest problems for a lot of organizations which is they they react quickly. It's kind of a gut gut, gut reaction. We need to bring something in. We need to do this because our competitors are and they're not taking a longer term view and quick decisions easy, easy decisions made now can have significant longer term impact when you realize you're kind of locked in or your your data's managed in a, in a certain way or People have got used to using a certain tool, whatever it might be. And you need to have that strategy mapped out, not because you're going to try and deliver it all right now, just because you need to know where you're going so you can make the right decisions along the way. Um, so, which is one of the you know, key reasons I, I love the way that you you kind of you, you approach the audit and then building out the strat, the longer term strategy is exactly the right way to go. Um, but, but, and those examples you use are, are fascinating. I, I mean, I just wonder just to kind of finish finish up um this episode uh with a couple more questions um i was just wondering as you look back at the projects you've you've done and you've worked on um and if someone said to you okay i i, I want to embark on my my digital transformation journey i want to really look at this seriously what would you say are the kind of key success factors what what do organizations need to have in place to, to help them succeed on that that journey. I mean, I know we've talked about some of the challenges, but what are the success markers and how, how important is culture um, as a success factor as well? Yeah, so I think culture is is hugely important. And I think it comes back to actually what we were saying um, uh, before about where the, where the sort of like subgroup or spin-out group um, can succeed or fail. You know, you... You want to create a culture um, which is all about people and places people at the heart of the decision-making process. So we want to be tech-enabled, and that's fine, but we're people-powered. Mm. And we've got to not lose sight of that, even if we're automating something that people have historically done. 
we still got to engage with those people. We still got to understand what the process is. And then we've crucially got to understand, okay, what are we going to do with those people now so that we can power the organisation moving forward? So I think culture is, is hugely important. And culture has two elements to it. It is what you say, but it is what you do as well. Um, and I think one of the, um, you know, one of the sort of standout examples for me actually uh, is Netflix. If you uh, Google Netflix's cultural statements, what you'll find is, a series of values as you would do in any cultural document but then you'll see a lot of detail about what it means in practice how they actually apply those values lots of different situations lots of different um challenges and where culture has a role to play and that's the type of thinking that you need to embed in the company and it's part of what we bring to the process through the digital transformation audit as well we help identify where there are cultural gaps and we talk about ways that we can close them improve them uh, and actually help with them i think that the next thing is then thinking about okay if we've got the right people and we've got the right culture we need to be completely uh, open to the idea that we're embracing change on a permanent basis this is not just something that you know sits in a wednesday's innovation meeting <laughs> yeah. and then for the rest of the week you know we're just crunching out the billable hours actually it's something that has to permeate the whole organization so this is moving beyond the status quo, being agile, being flexible, um, and really making it part of your DNA. And if you can do this, then actually you can move so much faster uh, than people who aren't doing it, and you can achieve so much more. And this is where the transformative effect of digital really kicks in, when you've got people that are, that are working together, culturally aligned, um, and open to challenge and and to, to being agile. Truly amazing things can happen, and that's where... When you look at the tech businesses that you know we all know and love, that's how so many of them have been able to move so quickly. Mm, absolutely. Okay, so final question then, Adam. Um, and I know it's very difficult to make any sort of predictions right now because <laughs> it's uh, you know, the world is uh, a crazy place. But um, what do you see as the kind of next big thing for Calls Nine? What What are the next twenty? Well, actually, I'm not going to go twenty four months. I'm going to go. Let's go. 12 months because i think a year is enough what does the next 12 months look like for calls nine what are you excited about so from our perspective we're excited to to build on the momentum that we've seen over the last 12 months where organizations have because of covid and in spite of it felt the need to continue innovating and to continue moving their businesses forward and are now talking to us about projects and themes that perhaps felt more remote in the past but which now feel very close to home so from our perspective kickstarting more of those digital transformation journeys for those pso's um, is going to be a huge part of the next 12 uh, and 24 months and beyond we're looking at bringing more uh, technology to market as well um, specifically around this e-commerce nature of professional services and obviously we're wanting to keep growing our team and our business mm. and and really making sure that we um, you know, we have that people centricity and that cultural importance in our organization as well as in the organizations that we work with. Mm. Uh, no, I obviously I've been following you guys very closely for the last 10 years uh, and it's been absolutely fascinating. I, you know, I, I'm, it's been delight, delightful to see how things have progressed for you from, as you say, I remember sitting across the way from you at Eversheds, um, you know, from that to, to where you are now and what you're doing, I think is absolutely fantastic. And uh, yeah, I'm just glad that 
um, you agreed to come on and actually share this experience. I think um, it, it's it's really interesting for a lot of people to hear how you have approached it in your journey, which has kind of, I guess, gone through lots of different stages um, and has landed in a place that I think is is very, very relevant, very interesting right now. So thanks for coming on the the podcast. It was uh, It was brilliant. Yeah, thanks, Rob. I really appreciate it. And um, if anyone's listened and they're interested about Calls 9 or they want to connect with you, what's the what's the best way for them to, to do that? Um, you can find us at calls9.com or you can uh, message me on LinkedIn. Uh, always happy to connect and, and obviously, you know, learn more about what people think about the work we're doing and, and try and support more businesses. Brilliant. Well, I'd encourage people to do that. Uh, Adam, thank you again. Uh, Thanks for coming on the podcast. It was a great discussion. And uh, for everyone else who's listening, the next episode of the Legal Tech Arcade podcast will be out very soon. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of the Legal Tech Arcade podcast. If you enjoyed the show, then please go ahead and subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you next time.